It's the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. I'm Crispin Schroeder. So today on the podcast, we are looking at a few characters, famous characters from the Bible, King David, Jesus, and the Apostle Paul. And we're asking the question, not just about what these figures contributed in the way of teachings, but looking at the story of the context of their lives and what part that played, particularly looking at the Apostle Paul. This message is entitled, Humility, Trust, and Awareness, three aspects that are so crucial to the life of faith. Let's head to the talk, North Shore Vineyard Church, downtown Covington. Thanks for listening. Many years ago, before I was a part of Vineyard Churches, I had this band called Mary's Den, and we did we we played music together, traveled around and stuff for about. You can probably turn the volume a little bit lower because I feel like I'm afraid I'm about to get get fire and brimstone on you here with this microphone. But um, so. We had this band for about six years, and we would we were all in college at SLU, and on the breaks, we would travel around the country and lead worship. And I wasn't going to a, a vineyard church at the time because there wasn't one over in Hammond, but for some reason, we hit it off with vineyard churches. So we played a lot of vineyard youth groups and college groups and youth camps and things like that. And back in around 2000, we were invited to be a part of a, a vineyard youth camp, and I can't even remember where it was, uh, somewhere in Louisiana, I think, uh, Eunice. And we were invited to lead worship, and they also had another guy who was a really good songwriter, worship leader by the name of Jeff Searles. And so we were leading worship at this camp. They had a few hundred kids from different vineyard churches, and they asked me and Jeff Searles to, to lead a songwriting workshop. Well, I'd written a lot of songs about that time, but I had never actually been to a songwriting workshop, nor had I ever led one. And so it was an interesting experience. So we, we sat down to do this workshop, and Jeff Searles began talking about it. He had much more experience as a songwriter than I had. And uh, so he was talking about how you write songs. And he said, you know, the kind of typical stuff you hear at songwriting workshops, you need to have a chorus with a, a good hook, something that's memorable, like... It's a small world after all. You need to have a, a hook. You need to have, you know, you may want to structure your song like a, a, cor- a, a verse, a chorus, a verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, uh, rock, guitar, solo, whatever. And so he was talking about all that. And then it came time for me to talk about songwriting. And this is the best I could come up with. I said, yeah, for me, songwriting is loving God and loving music and loving God while you're loving music at the same time. And if you do that, like, you'll get a song. Because that had been my experience. I would frequently pick up my guitar and just walk around the living room talking to God and playing guitar. Uh, there's a song we do here occasionally that I wrote even back at that time called Ruined. And, and that's the way the song came out. I'm just, we're, we're living in this little dump of a place over in Hammond, um, 
we'd only been married a couple of years. Tevi was a, a few months old. And I just would just walk around the house talking to Jesus and singing out. And then even, you know, the song came out right there. So it wasn't like I sat down to wrote a song. The song just came out of loving God with my instrument. Now, so it was an interesting, you know, my part of the songwriting workshop was pretty short because that's about all I had to say. <laughs> that's how you write a song. But who was right? Whose answer was right? Was it Jeff Searle's answer or was it my answer? Well, it was both. It's just that we were coming to it from two different angles. Jeff was talking about the, the structure of a song, and I was talking more about the context from which a song emerges. Now, the reality is you can write songs without the context that I spoke of. I, I was... I. I remember talking to, I met some guys um, that were Nashville songwriters back in 2003, and I was blown away to find out there's, there's actually people who go to work and write songs, like as a job, like eight to five. They just show up and they just go turn out, crank out hits all day. And the radio is full of those kinds of songs. And you can just, you know, if you know enough about the mechanics of songwriting, you know, you can, you can develop that craft and get good at it. But oftentimes, those kinds of songs are like Twinkies, you know, like they taste really good in the moment, but they're very forgettable and there's no nutritional value long term. But when I consider great songwriters, I think there is the context of their life actually has something to do with where the songs come from. Um, I, I remember, this is going to date me for, for some of you younger folks up in here, but... Uh, there used to be these, there's, these channels probably still exist. I just haven't had cable in about eight years. So MTV, VH1, those, those still a thing? Any, anybody know? <laughs> well, back in the day, kids, there were these TV channels that would show music videos. <laughs> and that was a very long time ago because uh, I think they both gave up on that uh, many years ago. But I remember VH1 used to have this show called Behind the Music. Did anybody ever watch Behind the Music? So you would, you know, you'd find some band that, that was popular like Fleetwood Mac or the Allman Brothers and, and instead of just talking about the songs, you would find out where the songs came from. And I always found that fascinating. In fact, I still find it fascinating. I've, I've, the last couple of months, I've read a couple of books on Bob Dylan. I just finished a memoir by Jeff Tweedy, the lead singer of Wilco and I'm currently going through a book by Paul Simon because I'm fascinated, not just in the music itself, but what goes into a person's life that causes this to come forth. Now, the interesting thing to me is that the question of context, where things come from, that's also a very important issue in the Bible. But it's an issue that gets so overlooked because we so often have this mentality when it comes to the scriptures that the Bible is just the rule manual, you know, the, the uh, owner's manual for your life. It, you, you may have even heard somebody preach that before. You know, if the check engine light in your life comes on, then just pull out the owner's manual. That's one way of looking at the Bible, but probably one of the least compelling ways of looking at the Bible as just a book that gives you answers. What if 
Some of the greatest things that the Bible has to offer us don't come in the form of answers, but, be, but actually come to us in the forms of the stories, the actual context of the people that experience them. I mean, back to songwriting for a moment. My favorite book and one of my favorite books in the whole Bible is right in the middle of the Bible, and it is just a collection of song lyrics, the book of Psalms. And what I love, you can, you know, as much as I get out of the Psalms themselves, I love sometimes you can see a little heading above one of the Psalms that says, this is the song that David wrote when he was on the run from Saul and he was hiding in caves. Or this was the song that David wrote when he had to pretend that he was going insane in front of this king to get out of a tough situation. That's the stuff that speaks to me. Because David wasn't trying to crank out worship hits. You know, there's a whole industry right now of worship songwriting that's just like Nashville, and it has about the same quality as that. I won't preach on that much longer. But I hear so many songs that just sound like they are turned out by guys who just know how the mechanics of songwriting work. But they don't sound like the songs that David wrote. David wrote songs when he was on the run from his life, when he was struggling with his own doubts that, that God was even going to come through. Those are the kind of songs that stand the test of time. Those, that's the reason why these, these, these songs, after thousands and thousands of years, are still important to people of faith all around the world. David wasn't trying to write songs. Writing songs was the way that he processed his own journey. But that speaks of context. And when I look at the, when I look at the Bible, whether it's David or whether it's Jesus or even the Apostle Paul, as much as I get all kinds of wisdom from the teachings of Jesus and David and Paul, what really makes the teachings themselves speak to me in a powerful and profound way is the context from which they emerge. Let's think about Jesus for a moment. You know, there have been numerous spiritual gurus for the last few thousand of years that hide away in monasteries or communities by themselves, and they dispense words of wisdoms and proverbs to their followers to give to the world. They write books. But Jesus didn't do that, did he? Jesus wasn't locked up in academia trying to sell books or be spiritual. Jesus got his hands dirty. And we can see, you know, clues to how Jesus lived in the stories of the scriptures. You know, last week I talked about the feeding of the 5,000. But it's interesting the way that story starts off because it says Jesus was actually just trying to go get alone with God. And people came by the thousands to find him. But that Jesus going to get alone with God stuff, that happens all over the Gospels. In fact, you know, I've, I've talked recently when we were going through the Lord's Prayer about Jesus' teachings about, you know, instead of worrying about tomorrow and what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, go outside and look at birds. Go outside and look at the flowers. Let the creation of God testify to you. Where did Jesus get that idea? Probably because Jesus did the same thing. I, I, that's what I think. Jesus goes out there. 
He hangs out with the Father. He looks at the birds. He looks at the flowers. Jesus isn't preaching to us something that is disconnected from his life but is embodied by his life. And I think that's one of the most important things about Jesus. Jesus didn't tell us just that we need to forgive or that we need to love our enemies, but when Jesus is experiencing the worst day of his life, hanging up on a cross, facing the worst that humanity could throw at him, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they don't even know what they're doing. Jesus embodied the very message that he preached. And I think when we begin to look at the Bible from this point of view, rather than asking the Bible to answer everything in our lives, because honestly, there's a lot of things we experience that the Bible doesn't speak to at all. The Bible doesn't have much to say about the internet or cloning, or genetically modified foods, or gun violence. (laughs) But if we learn to look at the scriptures as examples that we can draw from for the context of our own lives, then we learn something about transformation itself. And, And in closing today, I want to consider one of the most central characters in the New Testament, and that's the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is... An interesting character because before he was ever known as Apostle Paul, he was basically a terrorist. Uh, I, I put a lot of scriptures in here today. I'm not going to read them, but you can, you can feel free to go through them. But I'll just kind of c- capture the story briefly. In Acts chapter 7, we see the story of the first martyr in the church, a guy named Stephen. Stephen was leading up a ministry trying to take care of the widows, the, 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 the most vulnerable people in the community, and he's stoned to death by the Pharisees. And who's their leader? Who's the one presiding over the stoning? It's Saul, who would later become the apostle Paul. And we read that after that, that Saul goes on this rampage trying to hunt down followers of Jesus in Jerusalem and in the surrounding cities. And Paul was the type of person that had no problem with using violence, even lethal violence, against people who did not believe the way that he did. And yet, when Paul is on the road to Damascus to persecute more Christians... He actually bumps into God. Imagine if you had spent your whole life being a religious person, being so religious and zealous for your faith that you think God is on your side and approves of everything that you do and you are God's anointed man for the hour only to actually bump into God and find out instead of helping God or God being on your side, you have actually been fighting God by persecuting other people. And that's what happens to Saul. He's going on the road to Damascus, and it says a bright white light enveloped him, and and they heard this voice from heaven, Saul and his followers, and it was Jesus. He says, Saul, why do you persecute me? Lord, who is this? This is Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Uh Uh-oh. Saul was blinded by the truth. He was humbled. All of a sudden, everything that he thought he was doing for the right reasons were exposed. Now he was revealed to be just a violent, ideological terrorist. 
And in this moment of encountering Jesus, we see a beautiful picture of both God's grace and God's judgment. See, Jesus, Jesus doesn't just like say, oh, it's cool, Paul. No biggie. No, Paul is blinded. <laughs> he's blinded. He's got to grope around. For three days, he's in the dark. This guy who thought he knew everything, now all of a sudden he has to rely on other people to lead him around. In fact, Jesus tells him, I want you to go into this town and somebody's going to pray for you. A member of the very group that you've been persecuting, you're going to have to humble yourself and ask them to pray for you. And this guy's going to lay his hands on you and you'll begin to see again. That's certainly a lot more gracious though than the way we would handle a terrorist today, right? We've lived in a world since 9-11 where we're hunting down terrorists all over the world. And it's like playing whack-a-mole, you know? You, you knock down one guy and then another dude pops up. But what do we do with terrorists as the United States? Well, we either execute them on site or we lock them up in Gitmo. How does Jesus respond to a terrorist? Well, he judges them. But the judgment of Christ is always redemptive. God doesn't just judge us to judge us or punitively like we do oftentimes. The judgment of Paul, a guy who murdered on behalf of his view of God, a guy who persecuted people, broke up families based on his skewed view of reality. Yes, he was judged by God, but that judgment was so that he could see. He was blinded by the truth so he could learn to see by the light of Christ. And when Paul, well, Saul turns into the apostle Paul, when he comes out of that situation, he, he goes and Ananias, Ananias lays his hands on him and prays for him. And it says something like scales fell from his eyes and Paul would never see God or people or God's purposes the same way again. This guy who had fought so much for his own tribalistic view of, of, of who God was, this guy who was okay with using violence, would never use violence again, would never advocate violence in the name of God again. And he would go on to be the one who writes more about the grace of God than any other writer in the whole Bible, one who writes more about the reconciliation of God more than any other writer in the Bible, one who would go on to write more about a unity that transcends race, gender, social status, more than any other author in the whole Bible. Why is that? Because that was his very experience of his first encounter with Christ. I love, and, 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 and really, it's, it's this aspect of, it's so easy to consider the theology of Paul because Paul really writes more theological writings than anybody in the New Testament. He's, he's kind of unpacking the ideas of Christ for community. But again, Paul is no theologian locked up in some seminary. If you read the story of Paul, you're seeing a guy that's going through trial after trial. He is run out of town. He's locked up in jail. He's shipwrecked. And then when he comes ashore, he's trying to gather wood for a fire and gets bit by a poisonous snake. He gets stoned to, to within an inch of his life by an angry mob. 
And yet, this same Apostle Paul would go on to write some of the most hopeful and beautiful passages in the entire New Testament. If you look at Philippians chapter 4, Paul writes, whatever things are noble, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are pure, whatever things are good, think on these things. You know where Paul wrote that? In prison. So many times we get into situations in our life that are unfair. You know, maybe something somebody else has done to us. Maybe it's our own choices, but we get into a situation where things just are not working and we just stop seeing anything good. A lot of times people who get locked up in jail or prison, man, they, they, they just get more bitter, more resentful. They come under the weight of it. But the Apostle Paul's in prison, in a Roman prison, in a situation that looks bleak. I mean, he would end up being executed by the Romans. And, and yet, Paul shares some of the most beautiful words of hope. He goes on after that to say, hey, if you have any needs in your life, just present them before God. Bring them before the Lord. And God will allow a peace that is greater than your own comprehension, your own understanding, to settle upon your hearts and your minds. And then Paul goes on to say this. Philippians 4, 11, Paul says, I, I've learned the secret of happiness. Anybody want the secret of happiness today? Got the secret of happiness. Hope you'll still come back next week. Paul says this. I'm not saying any of this stuff because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty, but I've learned the secret of being content, the secret of happiness in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. You know, as a young Christian, I, I was around a lot of, prosperity gospel teachings and they would say they would use the scripture to say you can have whatever you want in Christ that's not what Paul's saying here that is a perversion of what Paul's saying Paul's not saying you can have anything you want in Christ he says no you can go through anything if God's with you you can go through anything what a freeing thing that is imagine what life would be like if your happiness wasn't tied to the economy of the United States. Imagine what your mental state would be if it wasn't tied to your views of what people post on Facebook. Imagine how happy you might be if you weren't tying your happiness to what other people think of you. Oh, it's about to get real up in here. Imagine if your happiness wasn't tied to your title. Imagine if it was actually tied to, I know God is with me. And no matter what changes in life, God is the rock, the foundation. I've experienced a little of that in my life. I've experienced a little bit of what Paul's talking about. I like it when things are going great. Don't get me wrong. I much prefer when things are going good, but 
I've also come to see over the years that God's with me in the darkest times that I've ever experienced. If I will but open my eyes, if I'll but open my heart, God has never left me, ever. And I can go through anything as long as I've got the Spirit of God with me. I can go through anything. In fact, Paul goes on in Romans 8 to say, God will work everything together for you for your good. Everything. I don't, I wouldn't want to go through some of the things that I've gone through in my life if I had the choice again. But I can tell you that God has used those things in my life to bring compassion, to cause me to see things that I wouldn't have seen otherwise. God has actually worked those things together for my good. Now, I just want to offer a few observations about the context. Whether it's David, whether it's Jesus, whether the Apostle Paul. There are three aspects that I see that we can gain from their example. The first is humility. Humility doesn't seem to be a popular thing in the church in the United States. But humility is one of the most important aspects of faith. I am not God. I can't see much in my life. None of us can. You think you've got perspective on things. You think you see things. You don't even see your own heart. Humility is saying, I don't know. I only know what I know. I'm trying to deal with the best information, but I'm, I'm so lacking in perspective. I would much rather surround my people, my, myself with people who are humble, who walk in humility, than I would surround myself with people who are immensely talented and, and not humble. I told my son, you know, my son Ezra, he's, been, he's starting to play music make some money doing it, which is really cool because he's not asking me for money all the time now. Um, but I gave him some advice. I was like, Ezra, be the kind of person that people want to play with. Don't get all stuck up in your ego. Show up, bring your A game, and be somebody that people want to play with. I said, I'm not the best musician in the world. But I get plenty of opportunities to play because I'm not a jerk. And just not being a jerk as a musician will get you down the road. You don't have to be the most talented person. <laughs> Humility is huge. The second is trust. Where are we placing our trust? Humility is saying, I'm not God. Trust is saying, I'm not God, but I trust my life to God. I trust that God is moving in all aspects of my life, even when I can't see it. I trust God as a loving father who sees my life and knows what I'm facing and will make sure I get through it. But the last aspect is humility. I mean, not humility, awareness. <laughs> Paying attention. See, really, I think if you actually endeavor to walk in humility and trust, you will already start moving into a place of awareness. When I look at what Paul wrote in Philippians, that's a guy 
who is living with an awareness, an awareness of God's presence, an awareness of what's going on inside, an awareness of what's going on outside of him. You know, when I consider some of the, you know, I've, I've been reading a lot about uh, Bob Dylan and songwriters. When I, one of the reasons I think that Bob Dylan's songs as still speak to me today and are still relevant decades after they were written, I think it's just simply because he was paying attention. Why do these songs still, why do works of literature or art or music stand the test of time? It's because the authors, no matter how talented they are, no matter how well they know how to put together a song, what really makes an enduring work of art is that the person was paying attention. He noticed something about society, noticed something about himself, noticed something of the stirring of the spirit. So how do we do this? Well, there are spiritual practices, contemplation, prayer, meditation, mindfulness. It don't have to be terribly complicated. As I've said on many occasions, just going outside now, sitting down for 15 minutes, getting quiet and paying attention, that's a great place to start. Maybe a hard thing to do because we're so distracted. Also having relational priorities. Learning to be a good listener. Learning to be a good listener. We're not, most of us aren't very good at listening especially those of us who speak a lot. <laughs> learning to listen. Learning to listen to other people. Learning to listen to ourselves. Learning to pay attention to what our emotions, even our physical bodies are saying. Learning to just pay attention. Committing to not going, on a, a, going it alone. How do we learn to pay attention? Well, learning to listen's good. You may want to go to counseling. I'm a big fan of going to counseling. I, I've been going to a counselor the last few months. It's been very helpful. It's helpful to get some outside perspective. We got a, guy, a, a, a guy's group that meets here on Thursday nights. And part of the reason why that works is you got some other people looking at your life. You share some things with these guys, and then they offer their perspective, and you get a little bit more perspective. You get a little bit more Awareness, you get relationally connected. Paying attention to our lives through journaling, just taking note. We have, we, you know, we have some contemplative prayers that we, we practice here. I know they're doing on Thursday nights the prayer of examine where at the end of the day you just reflect over your day and you just try to notice the moments of where you felt connected or the moments where you felt in turmoil. We do spiritual location exercises here where we reflect on how we've been feeling, how we've been thinking, our dominant thoughts and actions over the past couple of months. Those are very helpful practices. Journaling. You know, for me, as a songwriter, one of my biggest ways of paying attention is to write songs as well. <laughs> I love what Socrates says. The unexamined life is not worth living. And I think there's great truth in that. If we don't learn to pay attention, 
we just stay perpetually distracted and bit by bit our lives become shaped by the values of everything around us and at some point you really do end up feeling like you're losing your soul because you are not staying true to who God called you to be. And I think the invitation, not just of the teachings of the Bible, but of the very examples we have from David, from Jesus, from Paul, are invitations to live lives of humility, trust, and ongoing awareness. And I think this week, as we enter into this week, maybe even today, maybe we can just ask for God's grace that we can stay in that place a little bit more. That we can learn to not act like we know everything. That we can learn to trust. That we can learn to pay attention. As we do that, we stop trying to control the world around us. We're open to the beauty and the truth of God wherever it presents itself. And we become freed to actually extend love, true love, to the people around us. We're going to close this morning by coming to the Lord's table to take communion. And, you know, one thing as I was thinking about the Apostle Paul, you know, the Apostle Paul writes about the body of Christ, the church being the body of Christ. He writes about that idea. I think he's the only person in the scriptures that actually talks about the church as the body of Christ. But I think that's because when Paul encountered Jesus, he got that definition from Jesus. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Was Paul persecuting Jesus? Paul was persecuting the church. And Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? This morning, we're coming to this meal the bread broken, which symbolizes the body of Jesus Christ, broken so that we might be made whole. We come and we drink of this cup that symbolizes the blood of the new covenant, Jesus' own blood shed for us. And Jesus said, whenever you take this meal, remember me. So this morning, we take this meal representing the body of Christ, but we take it as the body of Christ as the hands and feet of Jesus. We come to this meal. We remember Christ, but we also sign up to walk in the pattern of Christ. So why don't you stand? We're going to pray the Lord's Prayer together. I think if you just click on it, it should be all right. Why don't you join me in praying this? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. Feel free to come up to this table. Um, anyone who's moving towards Christ. And uh, basically, we just take a piece of the bread and we dip it in the cup. So I'll just close this out in a song and we'll be done.